Welcome to Research Radio, Episode 14. Research Radio is a podcast series that brings evidence-informed child welfare research to life through interviews with leading researchers. This month, we speak with Lee Zanoni, PhD candidate at the Children and Families Research Center at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia, about her research on child protection fathers' experiences of childhood, intimate partner violence, and parenting. inviting me to speak um, to the members of your organisation, Julia. I'm really, really excited to be able to share some of my research findings. It's a, a real privilege for me, actually. So my name is Lee Zanoni from Sydney, Australia, if you hadn't guessed from my accent. And I'm in my last few weeks of finishing off my PhD in psychology. Yeah, so my background is, I guess, psychology rather than social work. So my research is fairly heavily weighted towards more of a psychological understanding of fathers. That's what I'm doing at the moment. If you wouldn't mind to briefly describe the study that we'll be talking about today. So um, what I did was there's a father's parenting intervention program in one of the low SES suburbs of Sydney. This program is designed for fathers who, whose children have either, either already been placed in out-of-home care or their children are at risk of being placed in out-of-home care. And the fathers come to this program both for parenting education but also because the program and the program staff help the fathers to get their children out of out of home care and into their father's care. So the program actively works to restore children to their fathers so that there's less children in out of home care or foster care. They're, they're the sort of aims of the program. So it is designed to to educate fathers of what is age-appropriate behaviour for children. There's a, a module on child safety, child protection. There's also, the program also runs support groups for the fathers where they just support each other. It's a long-term program, so the fathers are expected to attend weekly during school term for about a year and a half. So it's a fairly long-term, fairly intensive, quite a holistic sort of program that covers a lot of the father's issues. I started going out to the centre where the program is run and I interviewed 35 fathers associated with that program. So these fathers, the fathers that I interviewed had either just begun the program, they're either or currently in the program or they've just finished the program and three fathers were just being assisted by the staff there, they weren't actually part of the program. They were at various different stages of being part of this program. Yes, I spent about a year and a half going out to the centre at um, various times interviewing the fathers. So I did an initial time one interview, which was quite long, and it consisted of a whole lot of standardised measures covering demographics, family situations, psychological measures, and child maltreatment risk measures as well. I did that with actually 34 fathers I completed those measures with. And then roughly a year later, I went back and re-administered those measures to 13 of the fathers who were still involved in the program, roughly a year later. So I have both cross-sectional and longitudinal data. But um, as well as those, I guess, standardised measures, I also invited some of the fathers, whoever was willing really, to tell me their life stories. And uh, because what I found when I was doing these interviews was that so many of the, the fathers actually wanted to 
tell me more. They wanted to tell me their situation. They wanted to tell me their life stories. And um, the program coordinator said to me, you know, why don't you invite the fathers to just talk about their lives? Because he said, nobody listens to them. Nobody listens. Nobody wants to hear. Nobody believes them. It would be really good for them just to be able to, to share their stories with somebody. So I went back and taped nine interviews of basically I just said, you know, feel free to tell me what you want to tell me about your life, you know, starting from your childhood. So I collected that information as well as information that the fathers told me during the other interviews. So so basically it's quite an in-depth study with both quantitative qualitative data and so, you know, it encompassed quite a lot. You are, relatively speaking, new to this subject area. Did you want to talk at all about how you've developed an interest since you were assigned this topic? Yeah, so I sort of um, almost stumbled into this area and doing research in this area. So I didn't come with a whole lot of knowledge or, to be honest, particular interest in it. You know, I'm not a father. You can probably tell I am a, a, a woman. <laughs> um, I hope my voice portrays that. And I'm a woman, so I'm never going to be a father. I, I grew up without a father as well, so my knowledge of fathers was just so limited that when I started this PhD, I just thought I need to understand fathers and fathering first before I do anything else. So I just read very broadly anything pretty much I could find on fathers just to gain some understanding and knowledge there. So I read across a whole range of disciplines. What I learned was really surprising for me because I had always had the, I guess, assumption, like many people do, or maybe most people do, that, that it's mothers that are, are most important in children's lives and that the mother-child relationship is the most important relationship as well. And that, you know, that comes directly from, from attachment theory and that, that primacy of the mother-child attachment. So I guess, you know, that I just assumed that, that mothers are more important than fathers and um, fathers were a bit secondary and didn't matter that much whether or not they were included in things. But what I found was reading all this literature was there's actually no research evidence to support the dominance of the mother or the primacy of the mother-child relationship at all. I just couldn't find any evidence of any studies that longitudinal studies, cross-sectional studies, it didn't matter how the studies were done, it didn't matter what country the study was done in, it didn't even matter what the purpose of the study was. There was just no evidence that, that that relationship with the mother is more important than the child's relationship with the father. And in fact, quite the contrary, what I found was that there's actually this vast body of literature that's been gathering through the last, mainly the last 10 years, showing that fathers just as strongly influence their children's lives and the father-child attachment relationship has just as much of an impact on child's social emotional and cognitive outcomes as the mother-child attachment relationship. And the influence of fathers tends to be, is usually independent of the influence of mothers. So even when the influence of mothers is controlled for or sort of taken out of the equation, fathers still have a very strong impact on their children. And that includes fathers who don't live with their children anymore. Uh, so non-resident fathers continue to influence their children very strongly. And like I say, this is across a broad range of disciplines, even th through um, large-scale national representative surveys of, of families, shows this, shows that fathers have, a, have an indirect, strong and independent influence on their children's lives and their, and their children's outcomes. That, I guess, has influenced 
the whole way I've approached this, my research with these fathers is that understanding that, that rather than the assumption that fathers, particularly fathers in child welfare families, are irrelevant, unimportant, not important in their children's lives, in actual fact there's a whole lot of research out there showing that fathers, including child welfare fathers, have a huge impact on their children's lives and are just as important in keeping children safe and just as important for children's welfare as the mothers are. So my focus in my research, I'm focused on child welfare, I guess. My research is child-centred in the sense that I'm not particularly interested in father's rights. You know, that's not where I'm coming from. Uh, what I'm interested in is what's best for children, what's best for keeping children safe, keeping children well, doing what's best for children. But from the research, the conclusion I've come to is that what's best for children is to deal with fathers. This particular paper then that we're discussing today is one of your more recent publications, but it's part of your journey in learning about fathers. And really, in Ontario, at least right now, fathers are a hot topic. Like There's a lot of programs out at our own child welfare agencies okay. with the same kind of empowering fathers and listening to fathers. And it's sad okay. that it's a novel idea, but... I mean, it is what the research shows. So can you then tell us what are some of the key findings from your most recent study that we're talking about today? In the most, most recent paper, what I highlighted is basically that some of the fathers in child welfare families have childhood and life experiences that are very similar to mothers in child welfare families. Now, we know that, roughly speaking, boys and girls are equally likely to be maltreated by their parents. So, you know, we know that the child maltreatment doesn't just happen to girls, it equally happens to boys. So these boys who are maltreated, they grow up to be men and they become fathers. And what we know from mothers in child welfare families is that women with a history of childhood abuse are far more likely to have children involved with child protection services or involved in child welfare than mothers who, haven't, who don't have a history of childhood abuse. But what hasn't been, I guess, highlighted or really acknowledged that much is that the same applies to the fathers in these families in the same way that mothers with a history of childhood abuse are more likely to be involved in child welfare, so are the fathers. So what I found with my own research was out of the 35 dads I spoke to, of those who talked about their childhoods with me, about two-thirds of them described very unhappy and childhoods and, and actual some quite severe cases of child child abuse. Some of the, these fathers were physically abused by their fathers. Two of them were also sexually abused by their fathers. One man was sexually abused by his grandmother's partner from a very young age and for several years. Like mothers, there's physical abuse, even sexual abuse there in their histories. Quite a few of the fathers were in foster care themselves. Quite a few of them were in and out of boys' homes. One father, his sister, had been sexually abused by his father. When that was revealed, his sister was removed from the home and placed in out-of-home care. But when the sister left the home, his father then started sexually abusing him. Then when this fellow told um, his sister that, he, that their father was abusing him now, she told the authorities and the authorities removed him from the home and placed him in a boys' home but then a staff member of the boys' home sexually abused him as well. So this man had a horrendous history of uh, abuse from his father. But it wasn't just their fathers. Three men talked about being severely physically abused by their mothers as well. 
one of my key findings was this history of childhood trauma that a high proportion of fathers and child welfare families have experienced which tends to just go under the radar and you know we, we're very aware of mothers having these sort of histories but we tend to forget or not think about the fact that well actually probably a similar number of the fathers from child welfare families have had similar traumatic childhoods. The other finding once again similar to child welfare mothers a lot of these fathers have actually been victims of domestic violence. Now I know this is a contentious topic and um, I certainly don't want to overstate it because I do believe that domestic violence is a gendered issue. I know that men are far more likely to be perpetrators and women suffer more injuries more often, they experience more fear generally than men who are victims. But it doesn't change the fact that there is a minority group of men, a small group of men, who are genuine victims of domestic violence. And I think these men tend to turn up in child welfare families because, and this also shouldn't be surprising from what we know of mothers. So we know that there's a very high co-occurrence between domestic violence and child abuse where the father's the perpetrator. So we know it's quite common for men to be violent towards their partner as well as towards their children. So we know that, but what hasn't been, I guess, so obvious is the fact that it happens the other way around too where sometimes the mother is violent towards both her children and her partner. And that's come up not just in my research, but in, in other research that's been shown in the statistics, but just not commented on. Um, but it's there. So in my group of men, 35 men, 40% of them reported quite severe domestic violence, being victims of domestic violence. Most of them had been stabbed at least once. Others reported having been hit with a metal bar, a cricket bat, a guitar, um, being scratched with broken pottery, like having things thrown at them, having hair pulled, being kicked, punched. You know, quite a lot of violence towards the men. So some of these fathers actually stay in those abusive relationships, though, in order to look after their children. So what I found was that in many cases, the fathers had been the primary caregiver of the child or the children while still living with the mother because the mother wasn't capable of caring for the children so the father stepped in and took care of the kids in particular when the mother was violent or, or even when the mother was violent to both the father and the children. So a couple of the men acted as protectors for their kids and, and cared for their kids in the same way that many mothers do. So that was my second key finding was that there exists out there in child welfare families fathers who are, are being abused by, by their female partners so I guess the sort of families where this is more likely to be the case is when it's known that the mother is physically abusing the children, then it's quite possible she's also physically abusing her partner. And my third key finding was already alluded to was that a lot of these fathers have had concerns for their children's safety from the mother and they've stepped in to care for their children, to be the primary caregivers, to protect their children. A couple of men actually took matters into their own hands and remove their children from the mother because they were so worried about the child's safety. The whole story of these men's lives was very similar to what we find in a lot of child welfare mothers' lives, these histories of histories of childhood abuse, histories of domestic violence, fear for their children, staying in relationships to care for the children and protect the children. They were my main findings. It's not surprising what you found, mm. but it's surprising that we never heard it before. You know, mm. like it's just giving voice to 
a whole group that you're right. We have they're always on the other side of those statistics that we're reading about when we mm. see studies about women, but we never give them considerations. This is so interesting. So what mm. would you say are some of the practical application pieces from your research? Like child welfare workers that are listening now, what do you think they can take from your research? Given that my research and other research has shown or provided evidence that there is a, a proportion of fathers in child welfare families who have similar histories of childhood abuse, often very extreme abuse, including sexual abuse. Given that research demonstrates that some fathers in child welfare families are victims of domestic violence, and given that research has shown that some fathers are the primary caregivers of their children, they try to protect their children, basically some fathers have very similar, similar histories and life stories to mothers. Because of that, I think the key practical implication is that, well, they should be given the same empathy, support, services, interventions as mothers are given. So rather than thinking of fathers as a separate category or as a, a le the lesser parent or an unimportant part of a child's life, the father may be a very, very important part of a child's life and so in many cases, to do the best for children, we actually need to take care of fathers as well as mothers. And we need to give them the same sort of support and understanding and services and help as we give to mothers. If those fathers have had similar experiences as mothers, so that would be probably my key point. And my second point would be, from, from the reading I've done of fathers in child welfare families, it seems like there's a, I guess there are a lot of negative uh, stereotypes and negative assumptions of fathers from these type of families. And I can totally understand that, and it's human nature, it's very normal for, for people to generalise from a few very negative experiences to the whole group. So, you know, if you've dealt with a few violent, angry, abusive men, uh, it's very easy to, to generalise that to all fathers in child welfare families and think they're all like that, they're all the same, they're all losers, they're all no hopers, they shouldn't have anything to do with their kids. But the fact is, though, that they're not all the same. They're not all abusive, they're not all violent, they're not all danger to their children. In fact, there is a group of fathers within the typical child welfare population, there's a group of fathers who have probably been their children's main caregiver anyway, probably since birth, who are very committed to their kids, love their kids and will do anything for them, who don't want their children to be in out-of-home care. They want to look after their children. They've been doing it anyway. And there's a group of fathers out there who have a lot of childhood trauma, who've been victims of domestic violence and actually need help in keeping themselves and their children safe, just like mothers do. And yet there tends to be no support services there or there's no refuges for fathers and children. You know, where do they go if they're trying to escape domestic violence? Men who are victims of domestic violence tend to not be believed. Uh, it's just assumed that they're the perpetrators. So there's quite a lot of research showing that when fathers do finally speak up and say, this is really what's happening here, they're not believed. They're actually sent to perpetrator programs. In fact, the really sad thing is probably the only real service available for fathers is perpetrator programs. No matter what their story is, people don't sort of listen. Because they have similar histories, similar life experience, some of them have similar histories and life experiences, to mothers, they need to be given the same support services, 
and help as mothers. And the second point is to try as much as possible to keep an open mind when dealing with fathers and try not to talk or listen to fathers with preconceived assumptions that just because they're men they're going to be violent and abusive and angry and a threat to their children because they're not all the same and some of them are actually quite the opposite. They're, they're great resources for their kids. They're a good placement option for their children. And we just need to be able to really listen to men, let them tell their story, listen to them with the same type of empathy, understanding and I guess respect as, as what we know we should be affording to mothers. So I guess it's sort of equal treatment or approach and a strength-based based approach to fathers as well as mothers that will help children. You know, I'm not saying this because I have an agenda for fathers' rights because I really don't and I certainly don't want to in any way try and minimise or let off the hook men who are abusive. So I'm not saying all fathers should be given access to their kids, etc. All I'm saying is that there will be some fathers in the families, in typical child welfare families, there will be some fathers who don't fit the stereotypes, who are actually really loving, committed fathers, who are able and willing to care for their kids and are a great resource for their children who need help and support just like the mothers do. Well, I think that's it exactly, Lee. Like, your research makes such a big contribution to supporting practitioners' like processes of critical thinking and critical mm. reflection. In child welfare, we know that there are a lot of factors that can impact our decision-making if we let them. We get carried away by being busy. And I think in order for practitioners to really focus on those case factors and make sound decisions, they really need to be able to recognize when they're making assumptions and biases that could potentially, as you're saying, be harmful to those kids and mm. families. So I think what you've really touched on here is the danger in not thinking critically. What is actually going on here in the home? And you will be able to recognize those cases where the fathers are an asset and not a danger. So mm. I think that's so important for us to remember. Yeah, that's right. And if I can just add one thing, that I think what's really important with child welfare work is that practitioners are trained well in recognising the signs and symptoms of genuine domestic violence victimisation, regardless of gender. So just knowing what to look for, how to distinguish between a genuine victim and a perpetrator who's just claiming to be a victim. Because I know that's where a lot of the scepticism towards male victims of domestic violence comes from, is that knowledge that perpetrators of domestic violence regularly, they don't take responsibility, they do blame their victim, they do say you know, it's her fault and she's the one with the problem and she's the violent one. So that's where a lot of this scepticism comes from. Rightly so, you know, it's true. That is what abusive men are like. Abusive women actually do the same thing. They can also falsely accuse their partner of being the violent one and use that as another weapon, actually. So the really important thing is recognising, well, how do you tell the difference between somebody, you know, a perpetrator who's trying to get out of trying to blame the victim and a genuine victim, regardless of gender, regardless of gender. That's the sort of thing to work on, is that deeper understanding of how to identify domestic violence situations without the bias of, well, he's a man, therefore he must be the perpetrator, to go a little bit deeper. As you say, that, that critical thinking, that, that deeper understanding of, well, you know, you can pick a genuine victim normally by these signs and you can pick a perpetrator by these sort of signs. So that's the sort of thing, I think, to be working toward is that deeper understanding of what domestic violence actually looks like in practice. 
if you've seen any tangible outcomes yet. I mean, your research is actually fairly recent. Yes, at this stage, I guess my research hasn't been noticed that much as yet because the papers have only just been published. But what's really exciting for me is I've already been asked to, to present at a training seminar, a whole day training uh, child welfare workers, both government and non-government workers, on engaging with fathers in Australia. So that was, that's been a real highlight for me, is to be able to share my research to hopefully encourage and inform and direct engagement with fathers. What was really good for me was at, at this training seminar, there was a workshop as well, where there were about 100 practitioners there and they were asked to give feedback on their experiences of working with fathers and their difficulties, etc. And I found it really encouraging that so many of these the practitioners working with fathers could relate to the research that I was describing and it had similar experiences and from their own experiences they were giving examples of fathers they had worked with who, you know, really good men or, you know, not perfect men most of the men in my study had criminal records of some sort, not violent. Most of them did talk about having past drug and alcohol use, but they had given up for the sake of their kids. And that sort of theme of men, dads, with these very seedy pasts and histories, being so committed to their kids, they'll do anything for their kids. It's been really nice hearing stories from, from social workers and other practitioners working in the area, just verifying that they have experienced and met people like that. So I guess I, I know that this group of fathers that I studied, they're not, they're not really unusual. Makes what I've done worthwhile if it can make a difference. Well, really not just for fathers, but for, for, the, for their children's sake. In my mind anyway, trying to protect and do the best for children but ignoring fathers is like trying to do a jigsaw puzzle with half the pieces. You know, you'll never really be successful if you're ignoring half the pieces. You have been listening to Research Radio, Episode 14, a conversation with Lee Zanoni. Research Radio is produced by Practice and Research Together a membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information about this episode's topic, research radio, or practice and research together, please visit www.parkcanada.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Parked EIP. That's P-A-R-T-E-I-P. Thanks for listening. <laughs>